Leadership answers the question of change, and sometimes that answer means building something new. On this episode, Guy Raz, host of NPR's How I Built This, on what he's discovered from the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 491. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Few people know about great conversations as well as today's guest, and he has become a leader in the in conversations online about how to help build great organizations, and also how entrepreneurs can do amazing work. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Guy Raz. Guy is the creator and host of the popular podcast, How I Built This, Wisdom from the Top, and The Rewind on Spotify. He's also the co-creator of the acclaimed podcast, TED Radio Hour, and the children's programs, Wow in the World and Two What's and a Wow. He received the Edward R. Murrow Award, the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, and the National Headliner Award, and many others. In 2017, Guy became the first person in the history of podcasting to have three shows in the top 20 on the Apple Podcast charts. He is the author of the new book, How I Built This, The Unexpected Path to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Guy Raz, so glad to talk to you. Dave, thank you so much for having me on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is mine. As I was reading the book... One paragraph in, I think, the first or second chapter really leapt out at me, and I'm going to read it to you. These are your words. In high school and college, I used to think that business was a dirty word. <laughs> to me, it meant it was the realm of hucksters and pitchmen selling cheap consumer products on late-night infomercials. Watching my parents endure what entrepreneurship demanded of them, I could not think of any career less suited to my temperament and my interests than talking about businesses all day, let alone starting one. That's why I went into journalism. So clearly something changed. <laughs> what, what changed? Yeah. It's funny to hear you read that. Of course, I wrote it, but it's true. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I remember watching Ron Popeil sell the Ronco products or you know, whatever it was on TV or the guy who sold the Remington micro microblade on TV as close as a blade or your money back. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think as a, as a kid, I, and even as, as a teenager and in my twenties, I had, I was sort of cynical about business. You know, I, I didn't really understand what it did. And, and I think my sensibility about it was that it was generally for greedy people. I, I think I, I, I began to understand what business was in a more sophisticated way in my late twenties and in my early thirties. When I started to understand that business, essentially business, businesses, the founding of businesses are stories. And that's really what has defined my career. I've always been a storyteller. I was a reporter. I was a news reporter. And that was a perfectly fine profession for me. I was never a great reporter. I was perfectly fine. But what I loved about being overseas, and I covered the Iraq war and I covered Afghanistan, what I loved about being in these places wasn't the day-to-day -day news. You know, this bomb went off today or that official resigned. It was the story of a, a family in a village, you know, that was just trying to cope with life. And I discovered that business stories, and especially the stories of entrepreneurs, founding companies, are like heroes' journeys. You know, this concept that, that Joseph Campbell wrote about in the 70s and in the 60s, that every story really has 
a series of archetypal moments, you know, whether it's the Bible or the Odyssey or Gilgamesh or, or Harry Potter or Star Wars, there's a hero and they go through a series of trials and tribulations on this journey. They find a mentor, they fall into an abyss, they battle a dragon or the proverbial dragon. And founding a business is like that. There are so many challenges and so many dramatic moments that it really began to occur to me, you know, about 15 years ago, I would say that there's something there. It's actually not about making a lot of money and then retiring to a tropical island and drinking margaritas for the rest of your life. In fact, I can't think of a single entrepreneur I've ever interviewed who wants to do that. It's about building something with meaning and it's about building something that solves a problem, ideally for you and for lots of other people, and hopefully a problem that changes a part of the world for the better. And once I really started to understand that, I really started to embrace the idea of businesses and, and entrepreneurs as agents for change. One of the distinctions that you make in the book is around the topic of risk. And you make the distinction between what is dangerous and what is scary. And some of the entrepreneurs you've interviewed have thought about this distinction too. Tell me a little more about that. Mm -hmm. I love this idea because a lot of people who are considering starting a business or leaping into entrepreneurship are scared, right? Rightfully so. Many of them have safe jobs with good benefits. Many of them have families and mortgages, and it's scary to leap into, into the unknown, right? But the question is, is it dangerous? So this, comes, this concept comes from an interview I had with Jim Cook. He's the founder of Boston Beer Company, maker of Sam Adams Beer. It's an important company because Jim Cook really, he really ignited the craft beer revolution in the United States. It was Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada. Those beers really kind of set off this movement of craft beer. Before that time, American beer was kind of a joke, certainly in Europe. And Jim Cook was in his mid-30s. He had a great job at Boston Consulting Group. He had children. He was married, you know, on, on the track to partnership but he was not satisfied with his job. He wasn't happy about what he was doing. He was having sleepless nights. He was feeling unfulfilled. He wasn't interested in what, in his work anymore. And he started to dream about building something on his own. You know, he had done consulting work in the food industry and in other industries. So he had some experience as a consultant and he started to think about beer because he happens to be a fourth generation beer brewer. His great-great-grandfather was a beer brewer, came from Germany to the U.S. Uh. And when he went to his dad to tell him, and by the way, Jim Cook went to Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. And he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I think I'm going to quit my job at Boston Consulting Group and start a beer company. And his dad said, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I devoted my life to this, this profession and I've got nothing. And I was a brewmaster my whole life. This is at a time where, you know, I think when, when Jim Cook wanted to start Boston Beer Beer Company, there were like 12 brewers in America. I mean, at its height, and you know, in the before prohibition, there were like three, 400 breweries in America, five, 600 maybe. It really dwindled down to just a handful left. And he really thought hard about what to do because it was scary. It would be scary to leave Boston Consulting Group, you know, leaving that safe job, leaving the possibility of becoming a partner and having, you know, a safe and comfortable life. But he felt like it was dangerous if he stayed because eventually those golden handcuffs would become tighter and tighter. 
and he wouldn't be able to leave and pursue this dream and this idea that he had that he he believed would give him a, a sense of mission, a reason to get out of bed. And he determined that by staying, it might not be scary, but it would be dangerous because he'd wake up one day and he would he would regret not having made that decision when he was younger, but leaving was scary. So he left. Now he did it safely. He didn't just walk into his boss's office and quit one day. He did it over a period of about six months. You know, he started to research the the industry. He started to look for potential bottling plants. He started to experiment with recipes. He, he did this on nights and weekends until he got to the point where he felt comfortable enough to jump into this new enterprise with two feet. He had saved some money over that time. He was very careful with his money. So when it came time to actually leaving Boston Consulting Group, it was still scary, but it wasn't dangerous. Mm. The scary part comes up for so many of us when we think about doing something new or starting our own organization for those who have done that or have thought about doing that. And I'm thinking about the analogy that you use in the book of one of the entrepreneurs who mentions that starting a new business is like jumping off a cliff and and then building the airplane on the way down, right? And we often think about entrepreneurship like that, of burning the ships, of jumping off the cliff. And yet one of the really interesting patterns that I've noticed not only in interviewing some of the other guests, but also in, in your work and in the folks you've interviewed, is that folks tend to either have a day job, something else that's helping them really support getting something moving, or they have a pretty significant fallback plan. And I just find that really interesting because it's so contrary to the myth that I think we think about with entrepreneurship. I mean, 100%. We think of entrepreneurs as these kamikazes. And there's a fetishization of that kind of entrepreneur, the swashbuckling risk taker. How I Built This is really designed to dispel those myths. I don't want people to think of entrepreneurs as these immortal superheroes because they're not. They're just like us. The only difference is is that they went into the phone booth and put on the cape. They're all Clark Kents, right? Mm. And many, if not most of the people I interviewed either kept their day jobs or had a very clear fallback plan, even though they were super confident in their idea, they were super passionate about it, committed to it, optimistic, and believed that it would work, they still had a fallback plan if, if for some reason it didn't work. I recently interviewed the founder of a, a company called Briogeo. It's a wonderful entrepreneur named Nancy Twine. And she was a trader at Goldman Sachs, you know, got this job out of college, was really on the fast track to career success, was a real rising star, you know, one of the few young African-American women, you know, traders for Goldman Sachs. But she really wanted to start her own thing. And she had a, a life experience. It was the death of her mother that really kind of was a kick in the butt. And she decided that she wanted to start a hair care products company, specifically a company that spoke to her as a black woman and also to women who had different hair textures, you know, who weren't being served by the traditional beauty companies. She wanted to make something that was natural and organic without sulfates and and chemicals. And she spent 18 months researching an industry she knew nothing about and really taking one problem at a time, one, one small bite at a time and tackling each problem as she went along. She launched her business, but stayed at Goldman Sachs for three years while she was kind of standing this business up slowly. Today, it's a the, the most one of the most successful products at Sephora, one of the fastest growing products at Sephora. 
it's a 40, $50 million a year business. Wow. And she's just getting started. But it was three years before she left Goldman Sachs. This was her side hustle. So this is a very common story. I remember a, a conversation I had with a brilliant entrepreneur named Jane Whirlwind, who started the company Dermalogica. You know, she was trained as a beautician. Her training was as a skincare beautician. And she said something to me that, that has always stuck out to me, which is always try to have a skill that you can take with you wherever you go. Because, you know, if your business fails or if for some reason it doesn't work out, in her case, she knew she could always go back to being a beautician. And I think that's a really important idea, which is if you have a skill that you use, and it may be, you may be in marketing, you may be in logistics or supply chain management. I mean, these are all skills. You may be doing HR management, but if you leap out of that to start something new, it's okay to know that you can always go back to doing what you did before if you, if it doesn't work out. That's really incredible how many founders have that orientation. I recall into the story from Southwest Airlines of Herb Kelleher. He was, yes, a, he was a, lawyer. a lawyer and didn't, yeah. it's something like the board had to finally like. <laughs> they had to force him to stop <laughs> being a lawyer in 1980. I mean, <laughs> nine years after Southwest launched, he was still a practicing lawyer because they weren't making any money. It's, it's you know? really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other myths that I think a lot of us think of when we think of entrepreneurs is we see the people like the Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, and we think about this solo individual, single founder who does everything themselves, uh, you know, uh, taking care of all of it, the single genius. And one of the other patterns that's very clear is that, yes, there are cases where that happens, but a lot of times there's a second person, there's a partner, there's a co-founder, isn't there? spouse. Yes. In almost every case. And I struggle with the name of my show. It's how I built this. And it's obviously a, a kind of a, a shorthand for the title of the show, but it really is how we built this, right? Every single founder built their enterprise with brilliant people who they hired or brought in or helped them shape it or men had mentors. Paul Graham, the famous investor and, and founder of Y Combinator, one of his criteria for investing in companies is co-founders. He wants co he, he doesn't like single founder companies. The reason why he doesn't, and I, I think the reason why a lot of people who have co-founders are more likely to succeed is that business is hard, right? Starting an enterprise, even, and, and not just an enterprise, Dave, coming up with an idea and trying to execute it is really hard. Even if you're working for a big company and you wanna do something dramatic and radical and transformational in your company, it's really hard. To do it alone is even harder because we're gonna face challenges. We're gonna face setbacks. We're gonna face obstacles. And it's very easy for us to hit those, uh, those roadblocks and just turn around and, and call it a day. But when you've got a co-founder or co-founders, it's much more likely that when you're having a rough day and you wanna pack it in, that your co-founder is gonna say, we're fine, we got this, let's keep going. It's a setback, we're gonna be fine. It's far more likely that there will be times where one co-founder is less optimistic and one is more optimistic and vice versa. And that is key, it's absolutely key and crucial. And it's why virtually every company that I've profiled, every person I've interviewed has had partners, has had people who have really helped them 
to build up their idea and their brand in a meaningful way. I think about some of the stories I've heard you tell on your show. And the other thing that I've noticed is often how different they are in their skill sets and their talents. I'm thinking about like Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) Just, I mean, those guys are just incredible friends. And they're also really different as far as their skill set and the things that they were good at and their training and 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 it worked and it worked in brilliant yeah. ways. And I love that story because these guys were, you know, we think of them as these sort of hippies, especially if you remember their, you know, in the early days their faces were on the on the top of the ice cream pints. And, you know, they learned how to make ice cream from a correspondence class <laughs> at, at at, you know, Penn State. And what's so cool about that story, by the way, this is an aside, is, you know, we think of these guys as these these hippies who just, you know, kind of fumbled their way to setting up a store that and made good ice cream and people liked it. They were actually very, very methodical about setting up Ben and Jerry's. They originally thought about setting it up in Saratoga Springs, New York, and then they looked at other cities and towns and college towns, and they, they didn't go there because they, those towns already had an ice cream shop. They decided on Burlington, Vermont, even though it's freezing cold in the winter because Burlington didn't have a great ice cream store. And then when they got to Burlington, the way they found the location for where they wanted to open up their shop was they went to different corners of downtown Burlington and they stood there for a day with a a counter and they would just count the number of people who would pass by between certain hours of the day. And when they found the corner with the most foot traffic, that's the location they chose to open up the first Ben and Jerry's. You know, they they were reading small business administration pamphlets. They were really doing a lot of work to open up Ben and Jerry's. This wasn't, you know, they were, of course, hippies, and but it was it was a serious business. And one of them was more oriented towards making the ice cream and really kind of focusing on the flavors and the, the chunks and the other one was more focused on the business side and the marketing side. Um, and this happens in almost every business that you can imagine. And that's really time and again what, what I've found in these conversations with co-founders. Same with Method Soaps. Adam Lowry and Eric Ryan, very different personalities. You know, um, Eric is more of a advertising guy, marketing guy, uh, a forward-facing, he's got natural charisma. Adam is quieter, more of an introvert. I'm a science guy, you know, more more focused on the product, more focused on on being in the background. And that balance really worked for them. It really helped them to grow and to then eventually scale this incredible brand. You mentioned money earlier, and I wanted to circle back to that because I also noticed that as a really delightful trend in thinking about not only the interviews, but the the folks you profile in the book. It really isn't about the money, you know. There, you know, people are glad to make numbers and the practical reasons, but for most of these entrepreneurs, it's definitely about something bigger than just could I sell this business or earn a certain income or or, or anything like that, isn't it? Without question, I mean, in every single case, and and I think the best evidence for that is if you ask them, do you want to just kind of give it up and enjoy your life and kind of hang out? Nobody does. Not a single one of them do, because ultimately it's not about making money. It's about the mission and it's about the camaraderie and it's about, you know, the people that you work around and the ideas and the engagement that you have every day as a leader. I mean, a great example of this is is Gary Erickson and, and Kid Crawford, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Cliff Bar. I mean, Gary, 
he could have walked away in 2000, the year 2000, they were, they were offered $120 million to buy them out by wow. um, Quaker. And he almost took it. His, 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 his other founder, she wanted to take it, not Kit, a, a different founder wanted to take it, and Gary didn't. And in the end, he had to buy her out. And it was the hardest decision of his life because he could have walked away with $60 million and it would have had a great, easy life. But that wasn't what it was about. He would have nowhere to go. He would have no, no one to interact with and to exchange ideas with. He would have no R&D lab to experiment with new bars. And so he kind of doubled down on this business and took it private. And today it's a, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar business. It's the biggest energy bar in the country. And they're still actively involved in the business. They don't want to retire from it because it's their, it's their family. And it's also a platform for them to really do things that they believe in and care about. They're really involved with the U.S. women's soccer team and pay equity for women soccer players. They've been really involved with some of their brands like Luna Bars, pushing for gender equity and certainly pay equity. And, and these are opportunities that they wouldn't have necessarily if they just kind of cashed out and drank margaritas all day or, or, or pina coladas, which I don't, they, I know them, they don't drink them anyway. But you know what I mean? It's so, so most people, most of the founders I've interviewed, they want to work forever. That work is what gives them an incredible sense of meaning and purpose. Obviously, their families too, but the work and the problem solving that you have to do every day, it keeps you motivated. It keeps you alive. It keeps you in the world. And I think that's really the main reason why money is, is, is really not the ultimate motivator ever in almost every case. One of our past guests, Neil Pazrika, introduced the term to me, ikigai. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I believe it's a Japanese word. And it's, it's one of those words that just, it means essentially we just said that, that life purpose, that life mission, what are you about? And that is so powerful, so much more powerful than the money. And, you know, as I think about that and what really works for these entrepreneurs, you know, one of the other pieces that is really, um, that really comes up is kindness. In fact, there's a whole chapter in the book yeah. about kindness. What is it you've noticed about kindness and entrepreneurs? I think that kind entrepreneurs have kind companies and kind companies are successful companies. You know, we have a, a, we have a limited number of episodes we do a year. So we're very careful about who we put on the show. And we work really hard to find entrepreneurs and founders who are kind, who treat their teams with respect and with dignity and who give them an equity in, in, or a stake in, in, in the business. We look for leaders who model that behavior because it became clear, especially it really became clear to me about a year into how I built this, that we had a responsibility. You know, I started this show as a side project. For a, it was my side hustle. I was working on other programs at the time and some of, some of those programs I'm still working on. And it, how I built this just exploded. It became very, very popular. And as it's become bigger and bigger with many millions of people listening, we realize that we have a sense of responsibility because in the eyes of many of our listeners, our show is we represent entrepreneurship to many people. And I kind of made the decision early on that we also need to feature people who model the kind of behavior that we believe is the best in entrepreneurship. You know, obviously ethical behavior, 
integrity, honesty, but kindness is really important. You know, it's not, it doesn't mean, by the way, Dave, that you have to be nice and friendly all of the time. You know, I'm here I am, I'm talking to you. I slept really badly last night. I've got a really stressful day ahead of me. I just got off the phone with my wife 20 minutes ago and I was a little bit, you know, irritable about something and she called me out on it. You know what I mean? Like we all, we'll all have that. We will all experience that on a day-to-day basis. But to me, kindness and and being kind is a North Star. It's like as often as we can throughout the day, I believe that we have to kind of look to that North Star and, and constantly reset our compass to make sure we're, we're heading in that direction. Because we're all going to be, we're all going to honk the horn at the person in front of us. You know, we're all going to, we're all going to be irritated with the person who cuts in line or whatever it might be. But when it comes to business, the really excellent leaders are also leaders who operate in a kind way. I mean, Howard Schultz is, is a great example of this. He really wears his heart on his sleeve. And if you look at Starbucks's, if you look at their turnover rate in the food industry, it's among the lowest in the industry. Starbucks has really high retention rates. And a big part of that is because of the system and the opportunities that he set in place, college tuition reimbursements and health health insurance for employees and also access to Howard. You know, he he really made himself available to employees. He's no longer the CEO, but it was a transparent CEO and a really, really strong leader and obviously the founder, really, really strong leader and just a decent person. You know, I, I've never I've never heard a story about Howard Schultz yelling at somebody or, or upbraiding somebody or embarrassing somebody or treating them with disrespect or, or indignity. And that's important. That matters. That matters. And that also makes your business better. And that's why it's such an important value in my book when it comes to, when it comes to business leaders and entrepreneurs. And that North Star keeps you going when you have those days, like you're having a rough day today. I ironically didn't sleep well last night either. <laughs> so here we are. Um, and yet, it, it never occurred to either one of us, I think, to not hop on this interview this morning because there's a North Star, there's a bigger reason for doing this. And on those days, that transcends everything. And, and, and that actually leads me to something I, I think is so critical to what you have done with how I built this, which is the encouragement to keep going. And one of the things I'm really curious about is as you have talked to all these different entrepreneurs, and, and you've also talked with people who have not made it and, and organizations that have not been successful, what have you noticed that's different about those that make it and those that don't? Those that make it are obviously relentless and persistent and unshakably optimistic about the prospect of their product. There are many examples of people I've interviewed who struggled for a long, long time. I mean, Stonyfield Yogurt is a great example. Gary Hirschberg was bankrupt four or five times over, you know, almost bankrupt. He lost his production facility, you know, I mean, it slipped through his fingers many times and he kept coming back because he really believed that they were making a product, Stonyfield yogurt, that was unlike any other yogurt available at the time. And his feeling was, if this yogurt isn't going to work, if people aren't going to buy this, then there's going to be no market for yogurt. 
that no one's going to buy it because this is the stuff I'm making is so good and, and it has to be out in the world. And I'm just going to keep going because I believe in this so fiercely. It took him almost a decade, you know, and, and he was going back to investors and they were saying, what, what are you doing? You're, all of our money is just hemorrhaging and draining away. But he could also see as he, even as he was losing money, he could see a, a trajectory in which every year his sales were increasing. That was the, the key for him to kind of take the long view. I think entrepreneurs who succeed do two things. The first is they have an idea that doesn't only solve a problem that they have, but solves a problem that they and many other people have. So if you've got a great idea, like let's say you want to have um, a product that allows you to paint your hair in such a way where you look like a tiger, okay? because that is going to make you feel more confident. I'm just, I'm just coming up with a random idea. <laughs> that might be a problem that you have yourself and that you've solved yourself, but not a lot of people may have that same problem. What you wanna do is you wanna come up with an idea and a concept that solves a problem for a lot of people. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the businesses that succeed are the, and the founders who succeed are the ones who take the long view, who sort of step outside of their own bodies metaphorically speaking, in, in times of crisis, and, and kind of assess the situation and understand that there will be setbacks and there will be challenges. But if you take the long view and you understand that building a business really truly is a marathon and not a race, then you also begin to understand that those setbacks are necessary. You have to have them. They are what make you better. And in many cases, they are what can fuel your drive to succeed because there's nothing like a, a, a failure or a setback to motivate you if you can figure out, which is not hard, if you can figure out how to just reframe it in your mind, there's nothing like a failure or a setback to fuel the fire inside of you to keep going and to, and to prove the naysayers wrong. We started the conversation with you, so let's also finish the conversation with you. You have created something that you yourself have now become a successful entrepreneur. Something like almost 20 million people listen to you every single month. It's just an incredible number. And there's a member of our household that owns a lunchbox with your face emblazoned on it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I love it. For, for, forget the 20 million. Once you have, once you're on That's, a lunchbox, you've made it, man. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so the question to you, that you ask entrepreneurs also, how much of your success, Guy, is your skill, your talents, your training, and how much of it is luck? I am very good at what I do because I stood at the free throw line for 25 years and shot free throws. And the first five years, I didn't make any. And the second five years, I made a few more and on and on. And today, I'm able to make more of those free throws right? Obviously, again, metaphorically speaking here, I think anything that we do well, it can be learned. There's some exceptions. I'm, I'm never going to be an NBA player. I'm never going to be a professional athlete. But I really do believe that we all have the capacity to exceed our potential. And, and, and so that for me is, is one part of it. I mean, the, another, the other big part of it is, for, for me at least, is is chance, is the, the concept of chance and luck. And the reason why I, I, I ask this question and the reason why I, I like to think about it is because it's not so much 
how the person answers that question. It's not so much what, whether they're going to say luck or skill. Or, it's more a chance for them to reflect on their journey. You know, it's sort of like when you, you know, if you ever go to an art museum, the atriums of most art museums are really designed for you to reflect on what you have seen. You go to the museum, you look at the paintings, and then you come out through the atrium at the end. And they're often these these soaring, you know, cavernous spaces that are designed to kind of allow your mind to reflect on what you just experienced. And that's why I ask the question. I ask it at the end of the interview. And in my case, I, I'm a big believer in luck only because I believe that most of what I do is because of of a partnership with my wife. You know, my, my wife is an incredible sounding board, a, a brilliant person, just a, a creative, somebody who has encouraged me and also challenged me and has given me wonderful feedback. And I met her by chance, by, by total chance, by luck, you know, and, and I met her weeks before I left the United States to live overseas as a foreign correspondent for six years. This is 20 years ago. And so had that not happened, I don't, I don't quite know if I would be doing all the things that I'm doing today. And I met her purely by chance. And so that's luck. You know, that's, that was a lucky moment. Guy Raz is the author of How I Built This and the host of the podcast by the same name. Guy Raz, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dave. I hope you appreciate that whether or not you're an entrepreneur is beside the point. Entrepreneurs answer the question of change that's needed in our world, and leaders answer that question every day as well. Leadership is all about being able to utilize the right strategies and tactics in order to make the world a better place. And we can learn from entrepreneurs so many of the wonderful things and practices we've seen emerge, and you heard a number of them in this conversation. If today's episode has gotten you thinking about ways you can be more innovative inside your organization or perhaps building something new, several past episodes I'd also recommend that are a great compliment to this conversation. One of them is episode 238, How to Be a Nonconformist with Adam Grant. Adam Grant out at Wharton has written a number of books. One of them is Originals, where he talks about how leaders go out and create something new and don't conform, as we've talked about in this conversation. And so much of the research that Adam has done matches up with the messages you heard today in this conversation, including this myth that a lot of us have heard about entrepreneurship, that entrepreneurs go guns a-blazing and (laughs) sell off everything and go into tremendous debt and put all their eggs in one basket. Yes, there are people who do that. But really, when you look at the research, the vast majority of successful entrepreneurs do what Guy Raz has talked about, which is, yes, they leave the safety zone, but they do it in a safe way, in a planned way. Episode 238, a great compliment to this conversation. Also recommended episode 318, Ideas Worth Stealing from Top Entrepreneurs. My guest on that episode was Dory Clark, a successful entrepreneur in her own right, and also has done tremendous research looking at what has helped entrepreneurs, but also professionals to be successful and how we can utilize some of those tactics in order for our work to be more successful as well. Episode 318 for that. I'd also recommend episode 334, how to be a happier person. As Guy and I talked about in this conversation, 
entrepreneurs are often not really motivated primarily by the financial rewards because it is so difficult to create financial success, even starting a new business. But they are often motivated by happiness, creating joy in the world, solving problems, creating joy in their own lives. Episode 334, a great compliment to this as well. And then finally, I couldn't talk about entrepreneurship without mentioning the important work of Seth Godin. On episode 381, he talked about serving others through marketing, and the key word there, of course, being serving. Yes, there are wonderful ways to do marketing and getting the word out in the world effectively, proactively, and in a way that really does serve others. Seth has been leading that conversation for decades. Episode 381 features lots of his wisdom on how to do that well. All of those past episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, you'll be able to access the entire library of conversations searchable by topic since 2011. And this conversation is filed under entrepreneurship, also filed under personal leadership. We have had many conversations on both of those over the years, in addition to the ones I just mentioned. All of those you can find at coachingforleaders.com. If you'll go over and set up your free membership right now, it'll take just a few seconds and you'll be off and running with being able to access the entire library of past episodes. In addition, my own personal library, the book notes, the highlights I've captured from Guy Raz's book, as well as all the other books that I've uh, featured on the show for the last few years, plus access to the weekly leadership guide that comes in your inbox every Wednesday featuring all the links we mention on every show, uh, the links to books, resources, also other podcast episodes, other articles online that I found that I think will be useful to you. Coachingforleaders.com to set all of that up. Speaking of building impressive things, Michaela Omar is my guest next week. She's the founder of Me and the Bees Lemonade. Her business has sold over 1 million bottles of lemonade. But get this, she's 15 years old. She's been named by Time Magazine as one of the 30 most influential teens. Join me for a conversation with her next week. Have a great week and see you next Monday. Take care.